what seems as if everyone is talking about the value of community, including non-Christians. However, the world's idea of community is very different from the kind of community produced by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more gospel-centered resources over at our website, radical.net. And on this Memorial Day, we pause to remember the lives of all the brave Americans who made the ultimate sacrifice in service to the United States. We pray for all the families that are still mourning their loved ones. Their service to our country will never be forgotten. In this message today from Matthew 18, David Platt identifies some important aspects of the kind of community that characterizes the kingdom of God. Entering God's kingdom is not about being strong or proud, but dependent and childlike. And the community of God's people, the church, is to be a context in which we love, protect, restore, and forgive one another. For brothers and sisters in Christ who fall into sin, God has given us a process of church discipline that aims at their restoration and the good of their soul. Even when members must be removed due to unrepentant sin, God promises to be with us as we act for His glory and for the purity of His church. Here's David Platt with a sermon titled, Kingdom Community, from Matthew chapter 18. If you have His Word, faith family, and I hope you do, I invite you to open with me to Matthew chapter 18. Find Matthew chapter 18 and pull out those notes that you received and worship guide you received when you came. I am really particularly excited about this text tonight, particularly for us as a church, as a faith family. So I know that there are some people who are visiting here tonight who are not members of this faith family called the Church of Brook Hills. And obviously we are glad that you are here. You are welcome here. I was talking with an older couple this morning who was here from Ocala, Florida. And I said, well, were you just driving through? And they said, no, we, we drove from Ocala just for worship today. And they said this is the third vacation they've ever taken in their marriage. I can't remember how many years they've been married. And they by coming to Brook Hills. So if you are here from Ocala celebrating your anniversary or something, we welcome you. So know that you're welcome here. At the same time, this text just begs for me as pastor to speak specifically to the brothers and sisters who comprise the church at Brook Hills to show us what it means to be a kingdom community. So that's what I'm going to do. If you are a Christian and a member of another church, and for whatever reason you are not able to worship with the church of which you're a part today, then I hope you will be encouraged and reminded what it means to be a member, a part of your local church. If you are a Christian and you are not a member of the Church of Brook Hills or another church, I pray that you will be convicted tonight of the importance of the body of Christ, that you will be challenged to commit your life to a kingdom community, a local church, whether this one another one in Birmingham or wherever you might live. And then I'm sure that there are people tonight, maybe many, who are not Christians. My hope tonight is that you will see the love of Christ as I speak to the church at Brook Hills. Jesus has designed his church to be an expression of his love. And unfortunately, many times non-Christians look at the church, they don't necessarily see a picture of love. 
But I hope that you will see that tonight. I hope that you will see his love and in the process of doing so that you will be compelled by his love to surrender your heart and your life to him. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's dive right in. This is the fourth major teaching section in the book of Matthew. So the first one, we've seen three before this, as we've been walking through the book of Matthew. First one was the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Second one was when Jesus commissioned out his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. Third one was Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus taught parable after parable after parable, one after another. And then this is the fourth one. And it all contains this whole chapter, and it all hangs together with one thread. This chapter, what we're going to see is the first four verses in the beginning of the chapter set the stage for the rest of the chapter. In the first four verses, Jesus is going to tell us what it means to be a Christian. Then the rest of the chapter is going to unpack how Christians love one another and relate to one another in the church. For the second time in the book of Matthew, we're going to see Jesus talk about the church. In fact, go ahead and jump to Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, and you might circle the word church. It's mentioned twice there in Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. And I would encourage you to circle it because this is only one of two passages where Jesus mentions the church in all of the Gospels. Out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, two times he mentions the church. One in Matthew 16, which we saw a couple of weeks ago, and then this time where he mentions it twice here in Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. And that fact alone should clue us in to the reality that this is a very significant chapter for understanding the church. One writer said this chapter Matthew 18 is the single greatest discourse our Lord ever gave on life among the redeemed people in his church. So this is a very important chapter for the church. It's also a very misunderstood chapter. So many of the verses that we're about to read have been misinterpreted and abused in so many different ways. And as a result, we've missed what they mean. And we really, in the church, need to uncover recover the riches that are contained here, particularly as they apply to us in this room as the church at Brook Hills. So let's start by reading the foundation, first four verses of Matthew chapter 18. Here we go, Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us tonight to understand more deeply what it means to be your children and what it means to relate to one another as brothers and sisters. This is your church, the church at Brook Hills. Lord Jesus, you are head over this church. And so we pray that over the next few moments, by your spirit, through your word, you would help us to understand more of what it means to be the church. And that over the next few minutes that we have in this room, that you would conform us as a church more into the body that you desire for us to be. And then in the process, oh God, that you would open people's eyes tonight who may not know you, open people's eyes to this picture of your church, to your love. 
your compassion that, that people might be saved tonight from their sins and might become your children for the first time. Toward this end, we pray in anticipation for what you will do as we study your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, becoming a Christian. So Matthew begins this chapter by saying, at that time, which clues us in to the fact that what's happening here is based on what has happened right before this. You think about what we've seen over the last couple of weeks in Matthew 16 and 17. In Matthew chapter 16, we saw this triumphant moment where Peter declares, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Representing the disciples, he makes this wonderful proclamation. And then in the next chapter, Matthew chapter 17, Jesus invites Peter, James, and John to go up on a mountain with him where they see his glory transfigured right in front of their eyes, the Mount of Transfiguration. And so we've seen these pictures which have evoked now a discussion among the disciples. Who's the greatest? I mean, look at Peter. He's the one that made that statement. At the same time, he got rebuked a few minutes later by Jesus. Then you got Jesus inviting Peter, James, and John up to the mountain, so maybe James or John are the greatest. And so they're having this discussion, and Jesus, with patience, looks back at them, puts a child in their midst, and says, truly I say to you, in other words, mark this down, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And the message is clear. To be a citizen of kingdom, you must become a child of the king. This is the essence of what it means to be a Christian, to be a child of the king. And Jesus is pointing us here to the necessity of conversion. You'll notice the language of turning and becoming like a child. Jesus is calling his disciples to a fundamental change of thinking, of perceiving, of living. In order to become a citizen of the kingdom, you must turn from yourself. So this is the essence of humility here. You turn aside from yourself and you trust in the Father. You thrust yourself upon him in need of him. So I think here of our 21-month-old little daughter wanting, needing to be held fed, read to, loved, provided for, wanting, needing parents to do for her what she cannot do for herself. I think about when I come home and I come walking up the stairs and immediately she turns aside from what she is doing. She runs toward me with arms in the air and smile on her face and I pick her up. Conversion, Jesus says. Turn from yourself, thrust yourself upon the Father. This is the essence of what it means to become a Christian, to become like a child, humbly coming to the Father. Now, a necessary clarification here, because sometimes we we take this imagery here farther than Jesus intends us to take it, equating all kinds of characteristics of children with what it means to be a Christian. But let's let's put it on the table tonight. There are many characteristics of a 21-month-old that we do not want to emulate as followers of Jesus Christ. So my, my 21-month-old is by far not the model Christian. So we need, to be, we need to clarify here. Jesus is calling his disciples to humility of heart, not childishness of thought. Children have many characteristics that the people of God are definitively not to copy. They don't know a lot. 
Children can't focus on anything for a long period of time. They make all kinds of horrible decisions. We call them bad choices in our house out of ignorance and so on and so on. And we are not to mimic children in these senses, be childish in these senses. The emphasis is on humility. And the reality is the smartest, most intelligent, intelligent, most wealthy, most successful, most gifted person in this room must come to the Father, turn aside from yourself, and come to the Father as a 21-month-old to a dad and thrust yourself upon him in order to be saved. This is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. And it begs me to ask the question of every single person in this room tonight. Are you a child of the King? Is this the the posture by which you understand your relationship to God? Have you come to the point where you have realized that in your sin, you are infinitely, eternally separated from God? And yet in his mercy, he has sent his son to pay the penalty for your sin, to suffer the separation you deserve to die on the cross for your sins, rise from the grave in victory over your sin so that in trusting in him, you might become his son or daughter, a child of God, the King. I'm not asking, just as we heard Ross talk about earlier, if you've prayed a prayer or if you've gone through motions, if you've done different things in your life. I'm asking in your seat tonight, are you a child of the King? who has God as Father. And if not, I urge you tonight, this is the invitation of all invitations, to become a child of God the King through Christ, your Savior. Turn from yourself. Thrust yourself upon the Father. To become a citizen of the kingdom, you must become a child of the King. So this is where Jesus begins. And that then sets the stage for the rest of this chapter where Jesus talks about the father's love for his children and how his love for us affects the way we love one another in the church. And this is where so many of these verses in Matthew 18 begin to be abused. Look at the next verses, verse five and six. Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, people read that and they think, okay, well, this passage is teaching us to love children, care for children. You better not cause a child to sin. You better receive children. You could use these verses to uh, really try to persuade people to work in the preschool in the church. All right, you need to receive, you need to start caring for kids because if you don't, you might as well throw a millstone around your neck and jump into the ocean. That's persuasive. But it's not the point of the passage. Many people walk away from this passage thinking, yes, we're supposed to love children. We're supposed to care for little children. But that is not the point of the passage. What Jesus has just done in the first four verses is he's shown us, he's used physical, a physical child as a spiritual illustration of a Christian 
And he said, Christian or Christians are children of the Father. And therefore, whenever we see Christian or children or little ones mentioned in the rest of this passage, that's a reference not to physical children. It's a reference to Christians. It's a reference to children of the Father. That's the whole picture. So yes, we should care for children. And yes, many of us should work in preschool, but not what this text is saying. This text is talking about Christians and how we care for one another as children of the Father. So that, that's key as we get into the rest of this passage. And when we realize this, the imagery of this text becomes so powerful. You think about it, especially if you're a parent, or even if you're not a, a parent. If you have had a loving parent in your life, you know that it's one thing for someone to offend or to hurt a parent, but it's a whole other deal when someone offends or hurts a child of a parent. Think about my own family. You you can hurt me all day long, but you hurt my daughter and things will not go well for you. This is an instinct in every parent. It's what Jesus is saying. When you receive a child, one of my children, you receive me. When you receive a Christian, you receive me. See how he's equating himself here. I think about, I was reading a blog post the other day from a dad who was having a figurative conversation with a boy wanting to date his daughter. I want you to hear what this dad said. Figurative conversation with a boy wanting to date his daughter. The dad said, my daughter's heart is a fragile thing. If you play with hers, I will show you yours. He continued, if you ever find yourself alone with my daughter, don't panic. Just correct the situation immediately. If I ever catch you trying to be alone with my daughter, that would be the time to panic. (laughs) Then he concluded, it may sound like I'm joking and threatening you harm. And while I might not physically hurt you if you offend my daughter or violate her honor, when I am addressing the issue with you, you will definitely not be laughing. A good father watches out for his children. And even in some senses, in a greater, more passionate way than even watches out for himself. And that is the kind of zealous affection that God the Father has for you as his child. What a wonderful picture. Jesus says, you receive my children, you receive me. You treat my children harshly, you will wish that you would cast yourself into the bottom of the sea with a stone fastened around your neck. That's strong language from a loving father who is passionate about the care of his children, which then leads us to prioritize the care of his children. How? Well, in these ways. One, we protect one another. We receive one another. We do not reject one another. And then we protect one another from sin. This whole section, starting in verse five, there's kind of a break in the Uh, If you're reading the ESV, they've got it sectioned off right before verse 7, but it really continues, verse 5, 6, into verses 7 and 8 and 9. So read there with me. Verse 7, Jesus says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the fire of hell. So what is Jesus saying here? 
He's saying that as children of the Father, first and foremost, we are selflessly concerned about each other's holiness. We do not want to cause another brother or sister to sin. Jesus says there will be temptations in the world as long as there is sin in the world. So expect temptations there. We know that. You and I are bombarded with temptations everywhere we look in the world. Everywhere we go, with people we meet, with things we watch, things we listen to, we are bombarded with temptations in the world. And in light of this, we must not then add to those temptations in the church. Do not gossip to me when I am already trying to fight off other temptations in the world. Do not lead me astray in the name of your supposed Christian liberties when I am fighting every single day not to turn those liberties into license to sin in my own life. Brothers and sisters, we are bombarded with materialism on all sides in this community. Let us not lead one another by encouragement and example into deeper materialism. Single brothers, don't lead your girlfriend into sexual sin when she is fighting for purity against all the other impurities of this world as it is. Sisters, particularly as we enter into spring and summer, do not dress in a way that leads your brothers who are already fighting sexual images at every turn in this culture, don't dress in a way that leads your brothers to sin. It would be better for you if you put a stone around your neck and throw yourself down into a watery grave. We protect one another. We're selflessly concerned about each other's holiness. Jesus says, if you lead one of my children into sin, you bring deep offense to me. We protect one another, selflessly concerned about each other's holiness. And we are radically committed to our own holiness. As children of the Father, we watch out for each other and we watch out for ourselves. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Obviously strong, figurative language here to cause us to realize that drastic action is necessary to overcome temptation. If something is leading you to sin, get rid of it, Jesus says. Don't, don't toy with it. Don't flirt with it. Don't entertain it. Destroy it. And see how these two go together. When we are zealous about holiness in our own lives, purity before God the Father in our own lives, then we'll be zealous about protecting one another from sin. And when we are zealous about protecting one another from sin, we will be all the more careful not to sin in our own lives. Yet, if we are casual with sin in our own lives, then we will casually lead others to sin. And when we are okay with leading others to sin, we will be okay with sinning ourselves. So let us protect one another, brothers and sisters. In a world where we will inevitably face temptations at every turn, let us work to protect one another in the church. We protect one another. We love one another. Second, Jesus continues in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Don't despise. Don't look down on one another. Do not treat one another with contempt. Treat one another with care, with love. And listen to the reasoning behind this command. Jesus says we love one another 
follow this. In light of the father's angelic provision for his children. In light of the father's angelic provision for his children. For I tell you, Jesus says, that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Now, what does that mean? This is a verse that has been used to teach that every, well, some have said that every child in the world has a guardian angel. But we've already talked about how this is not about physical children. But some have taken this verse to believe that every Christian has a guardian angel assigned to them in heaven. Now, we don't have time tonight to dive into an exhaustive study of angels all over Scripture, and they are indeed all over the place. 108 times we see angels in the Old Testament, 165 times in the New Testament, these created spiritual beings that appear in physical ways, in dreams and visions and other forms. We see them at different points, carrying out God's plans, administering God's judgment, serving as God's representatives, accomplishing God's work, bringing God's provision giving God's protection, serving God's people, all kinds of things that they're doing. But amid all that the Bible says about angels, it never says that the number of angels corresponds to the number of Christians in such a way that every one of us has a guardian angel assigned to protect us. Now, we see angels protecting God's children. Remember, it was an angel who came to Peter in Acts chapter 12 and delivered him out of prison. It was angels who shut the mouths of lions in Daniel chapter 6. It's angels who Psalm 91 says, the Lord commands to guard his children in their ways. It's angels in 1 Kings 19 who come and feed and nourish Elijah. So we have this picture of angels carrying out the work of God, protection of God in unique ways. And we are led to believe from scripture that God is using angels to do the same kinds of things in our lives today. But that doesn't mean that we then have a guardian angel assigned to every one of us. Instead, the Bible speaks about angels in more general terms, like Hebrews 1.14. Angels are ministering spirits sent out by God to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So, biblically, my encouragement would be to think about angels more in terms of zone coverage than man to man. Angels cover everything that needs to be covered. They're not necessarily assigned specifically to each one of us. Maybe a little Box and one every once in a while. But that's the extent to which we see angels. And if you are not familiar with zone coverage, man-to-man defense, or box and one defense, feel free to ask someone around you after our gathering tonight, and you will better understand angels biblically. Now, this is important. Think about this. If the Father on high has angelic attendants that he sends out to serve, provide, protect his children, how much more should we work to serve, provide, protect his children. He has angels doing his bidding for that purpose. How much more should we do that? So love one another in light of God's father's angelic provision for his children and in light of the father's individual pursuit of his children. So see uh, this parable of the lost sheep and the picture of God's love for the one The Father's care for the one. It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Just, oh, for a minute, brother or sister, just let this one just soak in your own life. Child of God, the Father cares for you. Not just the person beside you, in front of you, behind you, like right where you're sitting. The Father cares cares for you. 
Do you really just think about it, just going to knock you back in your seat? That God on high is a father who pursues you, who runs after you, who has, amidst all this talk about church, has individual passion, compassion, love, care for you. Just let that just kind of shower over you amidst all that's going on in your life. I love Jesus in, in John 10 when he talks about being a good shepherd. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And listen to this. Jesus says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Rock solid promise for the child of God. You are in the hand of God the Son. You are in the hand of God the Father. Who or what in this world can take you or me out of his hand? No one, nothing. That is rock solid eternal security in God your Father for you as a child of the king. So if the father loves his children with this kind of individual pursuit, then how much should we then do the same in loving one another? We too must pursue one another, particularly when one of us wanders. We seek after our brother or sister because this is what God does, which leads right into the next section. When we wander, we restore one another. Verse 15, we restore one another. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, this is a passage we've talked about before because it's foundational for how we as a church do church discipline and restoration in this body, something that is essential to the health of the church. Now, we don't normally think in our day church discipline essential We think church discipline legalistic, church discipline unloving. Shouldn't we just show each other grace? Well, yes. Yes, we show each other grace. And grace involves turning one another from sin. Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church up in Washington, D.C., was here this last week spending some time with our elders. And he he wrote, imagine this church. It is huge and it is growing numerically. People like it. The music is good. The people are welcoming. There are many exciting programs and people are quickly enlisted into their support. And yet the church, in trying to look like the world in order to win the world, has done a better job than it may have intended. It does not display the distinctively holy characteristics taught in the New Testament. Imagine such an apparently vigorous church being truly spiritually sick with no remaining immune system to check and guard against wrong teaching or wrong living. Imagine Christians knee-deep in recovery groups and sermons on brokenness and grace, being comforted in their sin but never confronted. 
Imagine those people made in the image of God being lost to sin because no one corrects them. Can you imagine such a church? Have I not described many of our American churches? Another pastor writes, the church today is suffering from an infection which has been allowed to fester. As an infection weakens the body by destroying its defense mechanisms, so the church has been weakened by this ugly sore. The church has lost its power and effectiveness in serving as a vehicle for social, moral, and spiritual change. This illness is due, at least in part, to a neglect of church discipline. One of the ways we love one another is by restoring one another. So this is how we do that. Process of church discipline and restoration. Step one, private correction. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, that verse says, if your brother sins against you, some translations have against you, others don't. This is one of those extremely rare Always minor instances in Scripture where we have variants in our earliest manuscripts in the New Testament. And I say minor because in the end, it's really not that significant because even if Jesus only said, if a brother sins against you, the reality is Galatians 6.1 tells us more generally, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. And there's no specific reference there to whether or not you are directly affected by that sin. So the teaching of the New Testament as a whole is that if a brother is caught in sin or if a brother sins against you, either way, this is what you do. You go and show him his fault just between the two of you. So the goal is to keep the circle as small as possible. Don't talk about other brother's sin with other people, Jesus says, which is our first tendency, right? Did you hear what he or she did? Go fishing, find out who knows what about this or that in this brother's life. Brothers and sisters, be very, very careful at that point because you are entering into sinful territory yourself. Ephesians 4, 29-32 makes it clear that it's a sin to talk about a brother or sister in a way that does not build him or her up according to their needs in Christ Jesus. We must zealously guard and protect each other's character for each other's good, for the glory of Christ in the church. So go to your brother or sister. And if they are... And if they humbly receive correction, thank you for helping turn them from sin, then you've won your brother over. This is a good thing. But then the rest of this passage assumes that, that the brother is unrepentant if the brother continues in that sin after private correction. Now, pause here before we go to even step two and just realize this right here is where the majority of church discipline and restoration happens on a daily basis weekly, continual basis in the church. Sometimes when we think about church discipline, restoration, we think of big process in the church that involves all these leaders in the church or this or that. The reality is church discipline is intended to happen in the context of the community every week. That when I start to wander and sin, that there are brothers in my life who say, hey, Dave, what are you doing? Come back here. Don't step out. And it's what we do with each other on a continual basis. We humbly correct, we humbly restore one another, and we humbly receive correction, humbly receive restoration. And I'm convinced that if we're doing that, loving one another like that, 95% of church discipline will happen right there in the context of loving, ongoing relationships with each other in small groups, other avenues where we have relationships. So that's step one, private correction. Now, if the brother continues or sister continues unrepentant in sin, it leads to step two, small group clarification. 
So Jesus quotes here from the way things were handled in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 19, 15, where others were witnesses to the truth of something. And the picture now involves another believer, or maybe two. Again, the circle is still pretty small. Believers who are gentle, humble, loving, will go with you to that brother to talk about that unrepentant sin. The goal here is not to start ganging up on that brother, but the picture is to come alongside with other brothers and sisters and say, hey, we care about you together. We want to call you away from the sin that you are giving into in your life. So you involve one or two others. This doesn't necessarily have to be a church leader or pastor or anything like that. Sometimes, most often, it's best just to involve the people that are most involved in that person's life, who care about them, love them, or walking through life with them. However, if a brother or sister refuses to listen to them, then, Jesus says, step three, tell it to the church. Church admonition. And here... Jesus refers for the second time in the book of Matthew, second time in all of the gospels to the church, ecclesia, the gathering of believers. Now the circle obviously expands significantly so that the church, the gathering of believers, is made aware of the brother or sister's unrepentant sin. Now, that might sound unloving to you. It might sound even embarrassing, but feel the tone behind what Jesus is saying here. You may think, well, you're gonna tell a whole group about this person's sin? Is that loving to do? Yes, it's loving because now the picture is an entire body of believers that is saying to a brother or sister, we love you and we we are coming after you to pull you away from this sin that is destroying your soul. And that is a very good thing. Realize the love and the grace of God in this, brothers and sisters, that if you are continually giving yourself to sin that is destroying your soul. The Father on high loves you enough to send an entire army of brothers and sisters after you to bring you back. He will not let his children go. That's a very good thing. Church admonition. Church pursuing a brother or sister in love. And if the brother or sister still does not respond to that, if he refuses to listen to the church, step four is church excommunication. Let him be to you as a Gentile, as a tax collector. Excommunication. In other words, treat him or her as an unbeliever outside the church. No longer a brother or sister in Christ. Not treated as a member of the body of Christ. Excommunicated, expelled from the church. And this is not an option. This is a command from Jesus. To not do this in the church is to sin. We, we sin in the church if we do not do church discipline, and specifically if we do not carry out this step when necessary. Now, with that on the table, let's be honest with one another. This is tough. This is really tough. Tough to do, maybe even tougher to understand, isn't it? For, for us to kick someone out of the church, so to speak. I thought the church was supposed to welcome everybody. But now to say, no, you are no longer a member of this church. You cannot be a member of this church in your unrepentant state. That seems to go against the grain of everything that we think. But this is what Jesus says here in Matthew 15. It's what the New Testament church does. First Corinthians chapter 5, a clear example, other examples in the New Testament. And the goal here, the goal there is that This hopefully, prayerfully, will lead to the restoration of that brother and sister to see I'm separated from Christ. My sin has separated me from Christ, his body. 
and salvation. What have I done that he will come back, that his brother or sister would be saved? That's the goal. And then the process, the purity of the church is guarded. The glory of Christ is made clear. This is good for that person, good for the church, glorifying to God. We must trust Jesus on this. We must obey Jesus on this. We must believe Jesus on this one. Look at the promises that he gives us amidst church discipline and restoration. Jesus says that he has given us his authority in verse 18, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This begins a whole another series of abused verses, particularly when they're taken out of context. So this language right here is similar to what we saw in Matthew chapter 16. Here again, Jesus is not giving some special authority to us outside of himself, but he's given us authority that is attached to himself and his word. He's saying that as we do church discipline in his name, We do it with his authority as a reflection of what he does in heaven. So follow this. If someone in the church says, I am living in sin and I'm unrepentant, I will not turn to Christ. Then we say to that person, you are outside of Christ. Your sin is not forgiven. And it's not that their sin is unforgiven because we said so. Their their sin is unforgiven because Christ said so in his word. And we as the church are intended to be a reflection of that. Likewise, if someone in the church says, I've sinned against God and I'm turning from it, I'm seeking God's forgiveness, I'm repenting of my sin, then we say with full confidence to that person, he forgives your sin. Now he's not forgiven because we've pronounced it. He's forgiven because Christ has pronounced it in his word and Christ has given us the privilege of proclaiming what he has said to be true. So context here, when it comes to church discipline, we're doing the tough work of maybe even excommunicating a man or a woman. Someone might say, well, by what authority are you doing this? And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, you will do this by my authority. When you do this work, you will do it on the very authority of heaven. One writer said, never is the church more in harmony with heaven and operating in perfect accord with her Lord than when dealing with sin to maintain purity. There's a humble, humble confidence that comes in knowing that Christ has given us his authority to speak and to act against sin in the church. He's given us his authority. He's granted us his support. Verse 19, And I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Another totally abused verse. This is not a blank check for finding somebody else who agrees with you on just about anything and poof, God will give you what you have asked. Remember the context. Jesus has just finished talking about when two or three gather to confront a brother in sin. And Jesus says, know this, when you gather in unison to confront sin in the church, know that you have the full support of the Father in heaven in what you are doing. These are amazing promises that Jesus is giving here. He knows that this church discipline thing is not easy. He knows that we will be tempted to shy away from it, not carrying it, carry it out. And he's encouraging us here. You not only have the authority of heaven, you have the full support of the Father. If the two or three confronting sin in that small group, unrepentant sin in a brother or sister, caring enough to address it, know that the Father in heaven is ready to provide you with everything you need in addressing it. Lisa. the... Last promise here, he's guaranteed us his presence, probably the most abused verse, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. How many times do people say, well, where two or three are gathered, Jesus is there. So we got two or three, we know Jesus is here. 
People say, I, I don't necessarily have to go to church. I, I just, I gather together with two or three and we have the presence of Jesus. Wherever two or three are gathered, you know, the Bible says Jesus is there. Don't say that. Don't say that. What about when you were in your prayer closet this morning alone? Was Jesus waiting for a quota to show up so that he could come join the party? How many people does it take for Jesus to be present in prayer? Uh, one. That's all it takes. Jesus is not saying, once you've got enough people, count me in. So don't say that. Jesus is saying, when you're doing the difficult work of church discipline, when two or three of you are gathered with a brother or sister who's living in unrepentant sin, and you're doing the tough work of gentle, loving confrontation, be assured of this. My presence, which is always with you, will be especially real, especially strong, especially needed, and especially felt in the middle of that situation. Jesus says, when you are carrying this out, church, be assured you will experience my presence in a unique and powerful way. And there is, without going into specifics, some of the most difficult times, certainly in my short six years of pastoring here, have revolved around conversations like Matthew 18, 15 through 20 is talking about here. And it is absolutely true that his presence is uniquely and wonderfully strong in the midst of those moments that are often the most difficult in the church. You will be guaranteed his presence when you give yourself to this. He's given us his authority, granted us his support, guaranteed us his presence, all toward the end that we might restore one another. So let's love one another this way. Which leads us to the last exhortation here in Matthew chapter 18 for the church. We forgive one another. We forgive one another. Verse 21, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So there's so much here, but at the same time, this story is pretty self-explanatory. In that day, it was common among Jewish rabbis to teach 
that you should forgive someone who repeats an offense three or four times. But after three or four times, there comes a point where you no longer forgive them. So Peter, thinking he had an extra big heart, asks Jesus, how often should I forgive a brother? Not three or four, but seven times. And Jesus responds, no, not seven, but 70 times seven. In other words, you don't stop forgiving. And then in what can only be labeled the most extreme of illustrations, Jesus tells a story of this servant who owed upwards of what today would be labeled millions, if not some say a billion dollars, an amount of money that clearly this servant could never repay to the king. And yet the king, out of sheer compassion for his servant, forgave the entire debt. And the picture is clear. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, we have received extravagant grace. There is no price tag that you or I could ever put on each of our sinfulness before an infinitely holy God. When you say things like, well, I haven't sinned as much as this person or that person, or I haven't done what they did over there or what they did to me. I haven't sinned to that extent. When you say things like that, you show that you have no clue the extent to which you have sinned against God. Your debt is deep, extremely deep. And Christ has paid it all, every bit of it. Out of sheer compassion, the Father has sent the Son to endure the wrath you deserve to pay the penalty you deserve to pay, and you are free from that debt. Free, not just as a servant. You are now free as a son or daughter of the king. We have, in Christ, received extravagant grace so that, as Christians, we now extend extravagant grace. How harsh for this servant who owed millions, if not a billion dollars, He'd been freed from his debt. How harsh for him to then go to a man who owed him $10. And when that man couldn't pay him $10, you put him in prison? That's outlandish. And the point is clear. For a Christian not to forgive is to do the exact same thing. So hear this. Christian brother or sister, when you have been wronged, and I know, I'm, I'm certain that some of you have been wrong in ways that I I can't even begin to fathom. You have been dishonored, violated. You have been intentionally, in some cases, physically hurt. The Bible is not saying that forgiveness is easy in such circumstances. And the Bible is not saying that forgiveness is natural in such circumstances. But the Bible is saying that forgiveness is Christian in all such circumstances. To be a Christian is to forgive. The Christian has no other option. Not because the Christian has to forgive, is forced to forgive, but because the Christian is compelled to forgive. When that last statement, 
forgive your brother from your heart. Only Jesus can enable this kind of heart, this kind of forgiving heart in us. When you think about the way you have been offended, in some cases, deeply offended, hear Jesus gently and compassionately reminding you of the debt from which you have been delivered. And out of the overflow of his love in your heart, forgiveness flows toward others, not because they deserve it, but because you realize you didn't deserve the grace you've been shown. And it just makes sense to show that kind of grace now to others. This kind of forgiveness must characterize the church. So how shall we respond to this text then, Church at Brook Hills, on two levels? One is a church and then one is individual Christians. First, as the church at Brook Hills, we must care for every individual member. Now, this is a challenge in a church this size, but this is a challenge we must take up. Over recent months, our elders have been studying the word together, praying about how we can make sure that every single member of this body is cared for well. There's a lot of things we've been praying about, discussing. When it comes down to it, these are some of the overall general things we've been working through. I just want to make you aware of and also be praying together with leadership on how we can do this. One, elevating church membership. We realize that we're in a culture, even here in Birmingham, where church membership isn't that important to a lot of people. Talking about people who profess to be Christians, We live in a church-attending, church-hopping, church-shopping culture where people are wary to commit themselves to a church. And if this chapter, Matthew 18, teaches us anything, it teaches us that it's very important as a Christian to be committed to a church, to be a member of a church where you are saying to other people, if you wander from the Lord, I'm coming after you. And if I wander from the Lord, I want you coming after me. There's a vulnerability comes with that. There's commitment that comes with that, that is expected. It's all over the New Testament. It is good for us. It is needed for our Christian lives. We need to guard one another from ourselves in the church. And so we're thinking through, how can we better prioritize our covenant with one another? I asked the guys to put the church covenant on the front of your worship guide tonight to remind us of the covenant that we have made with each other as part of this church. I would encourage you to read over that sometime this week. Maybe talk about it in your small group. We want to prioritize this covenant one another and fulfill our commitment to one another. It's so easy at this point for members of the Church of Brook Hills, particularly those who are not involved in a small group or through other avenues, to fall through the cracks. And based on Matthew 18, that cannot be the case. We want to fulfill our commitment to each other, even to the point of church excommunication, if biblically necessary. So elevating church membership, which involves elevating what it means to be inside and outside of the church. All of this for the care of one another, which leads to the next thing, ensuring pastoral leadership as the elders have prayed and sought the Lord over this. One of the things we decided to do is restructure some of our pastoral leadership in a number of ways, one of which is to form a pastoral position called a pastor pastor for member care that will help us oversee processes and relationships where we can indeed account for one another, care for one another, keep one another from falling through the cracks. A pastor who will oversee our membership process as well as the care we as a church provide for one another, especially in times of particular need, whether due to sin or suffering. This pastor obviously would not be the only one responsible for caring for all the members of this body, but sharing, serving alongside the rest of the elders in this task. Some of you may know you may not know, but we started this about eight months ago and still tweaking it and still expanding this. But our goal is that 
every small group in the church would be under the shepherding care of a particular elder. So that at least every member who is in a small group is indirectly under the care of an, of an elder in this body, which is why we encourage everyone to be involved in a small group and, and why the eldership is expanding for that purpose, for the purpose of caring and shepherding. And hopefully, Lord willing, over the next couple of weeks, we'll be presenting to the church more elders who will, will be uh, up for us to affirm as a church to serve in that kind of capacity. Equipping small groups all the more to make disciples of all nations. Small groups are obviously not perfect, but they are intended to be the intersection of biblical community and biblical mission in this body. Biblical community, small groups that are showing the word and teaching the word to each other. Biblical mission, they're sharing the word and serving the world together, all in the context of sharing life with each other, not just being in a class together, but really sharing life with one another, protecting one another, loving one another, caring one another, carrying out all the the one another's that we see all over the New Testament. So working to, to ensure that's happening in small groups and at the same time making disciples of succeeding generations. One of the things as we restructure some pastoral leadership, we're also relooking at the best way to maximize, yes, parents and families, but also every single member of this body to pass the gospel to the next generation. Hard at work in this and Lord willing, some great possibilities coming before the end of this summer for powerfully strengthening, strengthening the way we as a church are passing the gospel on to preschoolers and children and students in our midst. So be aware, be praying for these things as a church, all of which flow from texts like Matthew 18 that we have been pouring over as elders. And then as Christians, let me just, let me just ask you these questions and encourage you in light of this text just to consider them in your life. So are you causing, leading, or enabling a brother or sister to sin? In your life, think about that. Don't let just be, okay, no, I would not do that. In direct ways or indirect ways. In your sphere of influence, you're causing, leading your friends to sin, Enabling them to sin, your spouse, the way you are parenting, are you causing, leading, enabling your children to sin? Your relationship with your parents, are you causing, leading, enabling them to sin? Are you guarding, protecting, and nurturing your own personal holiness? Is there any place where you have become casual with sin? and temptation in your life? If so, how can you, with God's grace, remove it drastically and completely? How can you more clearly express the love of the Father to the church around you? Are there ways that you can more effectively fulfill your commitment to other brothers and sisters that are around you in this church? Is there anyone you need to humbly confront concerning sin for their good and for the Father's glory. Is there anyone who needs you to do Matthew 18, 15 through 20 in their life? You say, I don't know if that's healthy. You just kind of be thinking, all right, who do I need to go after? But isn't this part of what we do? This is what Christ does in our lives? Now, obviously, there, there, there's counsel in that that Jesus gives us, Matthew 7. Don't, don't look at the speck in the brother's eye when you've got a plank in your own eye. So let that process of protecting one another lead you to 
self-examination and see sin all the more clearly in your own life. But don't walk away from that passage in Matthew 7 then and think, well, okay, if, I mean, I got a plank in my own eye and it's only a speck in his eye, so I'm not about to talk to him and not deal with it. No, take the plank out of your own eye, Jesus says in Matthew 7, then go deal with the speck in your brother's eye. So let it lead you to self-examination in your own life and then let it lead you to restoration in your brother or sister's life. This is a healthy thing to do as a church. Is there anyone you need to humbly confront concerning sin for their good and for the Father's glory? How can you do that? Humbly and biblically and compassionately. Are you harboring any bitterness or unforgiveness towards someone else? From something over this last week or for something 20 years ago? Mark this down. If you harbor bitterness or unforgiveness, it will not only lead to tension with that other person, it will tear apart your own soul. These are not easy questions to deal with in our lives. And these are not easy issues to deal with in the church. It'd be easier, we think, just to sit back and ignore these questions. And it'd be easier, we think, not to worry about things like church discipline and restoration in the church, which is why most large churches don't worry about things like this today. But as followers of Christ, we do not have the option of ignoring these questions or ignoring these issues. Why not? Because this is how we have been loved by the Father. He has protected us, so we protect one another. He has loved and cared for us, so we love and care for one another. He has restored us, so we restore one another. He has forgiven us, so we forgive one another. May the love of the Father through Christ compel the love of his children in the church. Well, thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. If you'd like to download the sermon or the free discussion questions that accompany every sermon, you can do that at our website, radical.net. Well, that's all for today's episode. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. And until next time, join us there, radical.net.